Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last time we heard from Daniel Calcagno talking about his own personal journey of faith, which involved quite an extensive exploration of Messianic Judaism and Christians who are pro-Torah. So this time, I interview him on his position on Torah, which he calls a positive view of Torah, and whether or not Jews, specifically Jews who are Christians, should keep Torah today. I want to say right at the outset here that although I don't agree with all the points Calcanio makes here, I think this is a really good opportunity to engage with and hear a case for Torah observance and a case for this middle position of Torah observance, whereas on the one hand you have the hardcore Messianics who say Gentiles, non-Jews, do need to keep the law of Moses, and on the other side you have the position that nobody needs to keep the law of Moses, which is my current position. And then in the middle here, you have Calcanio's position, which reflects the first fruits of Zion position, and that teaches that Gentiles don't need to keep the Torah, they can if they want, but Jews do. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, they do need to remain Torah observant. So here's his case. He's going to lay it out for us. I don't, I don't disagree with him or debate him in this. It's just uh, an opportunity for us to listen to what he has to say. And uh, I'm, I'm very much interested in what you think at the end of this interview. And so please, if, if you want your voice heard, come on to restitutio.org and leave a comment and engage with this material. Here now is interview 35, Should Messianic Jews Keep Torah? With Daniel Calcano. Welcome, Daniel, to another episode on Restitutio. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. So glad you're here. So last time we left off, we looked at your own personal journey of faith to some degree, and what's so striking about it is how much your own story is involved with the discovery of Messianic Judaism and Christians who are pro-Torah and this other ministry called First Fruits of Zion. And not too long ago... You and I were in the same class together. I was I was teaching, and I had prepared a lecture on the Christian view of the New Covenant. I certainly did not prepare that because you were in my class. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were going to be yeah. there. But it was just one of the topics that I needed to cover as part of that class, Solutions to Bible Texts at the Atlanta Bible College. So, so I know you've had an earful of what uh, what I think, and you were very respectful to sit there and not cause a ruckus or throw chairs out the window, <laughs> pull out your hair. So uh, when that happened, I thought to myself, boy, you know, it would be great to get Dale's perspective and really, really hear him out. We had a lot of those conversations in the evenings after class, but uh, yeah, I want to hear out your case and see where it is you're coming from. And I'm not really intending to argue against you here in a, any kind of a debate format. I just want to just wanted to get it out there because it's really not just you. Uh, this is a current within the biblical Unitarian pool. And why don't you go ahead and lay it out and give us, give us sort of like a positive case for what it is you're saying. We'll see what we think. Sounds great. And I appreciate um, that you mentioned uh, what we were talking about in class and, and, and some of the things that you mentioned, I have found myself bringing that I want to bring up today just because what uh, you were presenting, and I, and I again, I appreciate that you weren't presenting it because of me, but you were presenting them as difficult texts, and and in my in my mind, I'm thinking these aren't difficult at all. These, these are these are proof texts. <laughs> um, so the first thing I, I want to say is that, as you certainly are, you named your podcast Restitutio, that that uh, you're a restorationist, and I'm a restorationist as well, and and I think we can agree that that sort of the definition of that is that. We want to attempt to, to recover and restore what it is that Jesus and the apostles believed and how they lived their lives and to, to know them in their original context so that we can be better disciples. Is that a fair uh, definition well, of restorationism? Yes, absolutely. That's a wonderful 
explanation of the overall approach because essentially we can't assume that the form we've inherited of the faith is accurate just because we inherited it from people that we love or that we trust because there's just been such a long chain of people going all the way back to the apostles. What we really need to do is dig into the primary sources, in this case the Bible itself, and see what it says rather than leaning on tradition. Right. And so I believe that, that this positive view of the Torah that, that I want to present today should be a part of this overall discussion that those of us who would call themselves restorationists would have. Uh, and I don't think that we need to agree on every little issue, but I, I do think that among the, the issues or topics that we should discuss about being a restorationist, one of them should be you know the role of the Torah in the lives of, of believers. So I want to define what it exactly my position is. And just for any listener who is not familiar with the word Torah, it's just the Hebrew word that we will usually translate in our Christian English Bibles as law. But the, the word law, as I'm sure you know, is not a great translation of Torah. It, it's a, a better translation would be instruction. Okay. I, I don't prefer saying God's instruction every time I want to communicate the, the Torah. So I, I feel like it's probably easier just to say the word Torah and hope that people will... Like, it's a word that many Christians are beginning to, to hear more often. So yeah. I hope yeah. that people will follow what I mean by that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's um, a real advantage, too, in that... The word Torah for people is not already well-defined, so that gives you the opportunity Mm. to pour into that word the definition that you are trying to say, rather than if you do say law, there's all this baggage, and a lot of it goes back to Martin Luther and a particular perspective on Romans that interpreted Paul as saying that the law is this terrible thing that is oppressive, and isn't it so great that Jesus came to free us? So... Right. Torah, Torah kind of avoids all of that baggage, and, and people are like Torah. Oh, that sounds nice. What I don't know is that. What is that? <laughs> so right, right. When people say Torah, when I say Torah, I, I'm I might be referring to a couple of different things. And the, the first thing, of course, would be the first five books of the Bible, the the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuter- Deuteronomy. That's that's usually what I mean by Torah. What most people mean by Torah. But I think, especially for today's conversation, that. When I say Torah, that we, we should have a positive view of the Torah, I'm more so talking about those elements of the Torah, like the Sabbath and the festivals and keeping kosher, or even the temple and the sacrifices. Those are things that people usually will associate with Jewish identity, with being Jewish or Judaism, because all Christians agree that things like not murdering, not stealing, those sort of commandments are still totally relevant for Christians today. Right. So the, the conflict or the discussion that we would have or the debate that we would have is what role do those Jewish identity uh, markers, I guess we could call them, the things that mark out Jewish identity or Judaism, those elements of the Torah, what role, if any, do they have in the lives of Christians today? Right. So, uh, so how do we get started on this? I just wanted to point out that, that this is a part of that overall restorationist discussion, and I was interested to learn that there have been people, even in among the Transylvanian Unitarians, that there were people, at, even at that point in history, after the Reformation, uh, who were saying that a part of restoration or reformation should be returning to a, a positive view of the Torah. So the first thing I would want to do to present this idea that we should have, we as Christians should have a positive view of the Torah, of things like the Sabbath, that I would want to look firstly at what the Torah itself says about some of these things. So firstly, just about the Sabbath itself, in Exodus 31, 13, it says, As for you, speak to the sons of Israel. So this is God saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So Uh there is an ongoing nature to the Sabbath that uh, it's going to be a sign between him and Israel throughout their generations. And, and that would include up until this day. There's, so in other words, there's no, never a point. It, there's nothing in the Torah that says, one day I'm going to not expect this of my people. <laughs> and the same is true of Passover. There's uh, Exodus uh, chapter 12, verse 14. It says, now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. 
it, it doesn't seem that okay. there would be an end to the observance of Passover. Two, two more references that, that, that I found, and there are others, but these are some of the more clear ones. There's Leviticus 16, verse 29. It's about the Day of Atonement. It says, This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who is among you. So it says a permanent statute for you. So again, there doesn't seem to be a time when God didn't expect Israel to keep the Day of Atonement. Okay. And lastly, just about the, the priesthood of Aaron. It says in Exodus 29, verse 9, You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the—here it is— they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. You shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So there is no priesthood, especially when there's no temple in Jerusalem. Um, but it seems— that as long as there is a temple or, or a, you know, the, the tabernacle if, in the Torah, as long as there is that central place of worship that is functioning, there should be Aaronic priests who are there serving. So, it, it, there, again, not a time when those things would be done away with. And there, there, so there's one more thing that I could point you to when it comes to the Torah itself giving us a way to know of the enduring nature of the Torah itself. It's Deuteronomy 13. We won't read the whole first five verses, but I can sort of summarize it for you. Basically, it's saying, if you wanted to know if someone was a false prophet, even if they performed a sign or a wonder, if they attempted to lead the people away from God and to worship idols and to live contrary to the commandments of the Torah, then the people were supposed to reject that person as a prophet. Okay. They would be labeled a false prophet. And so I, I take this really, really seriously because if we are saying that Jesus or the apostles or, or the apostle Paul was teaching against the Torah, to be, especially to be kept by Israel, then we would have to label them false prophets, and, and we don't want to do that. So the, be the better solution is, of course, is to understand Jesus and the apostles to be in concert with the Torah and not to have a negative view of the Torah. Yeah, I'm just looking at this passage right now, and mm. I, I guess I see the idolatry. Let us go after other look, gods. I see that. But where where is look, it? Verse 4. Verse 4. You shall walk yeah. after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Right. And that's been interpreted by the Jewish people to, to mean that a prophet of God, a true teacher sent by God, is going to be somebody that is going to lead the people into the observance of the commandments. That's sort of the whole point of prophets and of the Messiah in particular, him being the ultimate prophet. Uh, it says later on in the Torah that the king is supposed to write a scroll of the law of the Torah for himself. Uh, in other words, the strong implication is, is that he's going to be somebody who knows the Torah and, and is going to be able to teach it to the people. Okay. All right. So it seems like your your main point by looking at these five texts is that from the law itself, from the Torah itself, it it talks about itself as being a permanent or perpetual or uh, right. forever statute or collection of statutes. Right. Okay. So the foundation is starting there. Let Let's see now if Jesus and the apostles would contradict that, or if they are, like I said, in concert with that. And of course, there, there, there's other verses that I could have provided in terms of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, you know, having a positive view of the Torah. But I don't think that's even a debate. I think we all agree that the rest of the Hebrew scriptures had a positive view of the Torah. So it, it all centers on, on Jesus and the apostles. Right. All right. So let's go there. Okay. So firstly, and, and the way I can sort of make this case is looking at the Gospels and the writings of the Apostles and just seeing how they spoke of the Torah or and or if they lived out aspects of the Torah. So I always like to start with the fact that even though there's no nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Jesus and the Apostles kept the Sabbath. There's nothing, it doesn't say that explicitly. We can greatly infer it from, for example, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Luke says that it was Jesus's custom to enter the synagogue, to attend synagogue, and to be a part of the, the reading of the Torah and the prophets that would happen in the synagogue. So we, we have a record of that in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And then in Mark 1, 21, 
it says that the disciples went with Jesus, in this case to Capernaum, on the Sabbath, and he entered the synagogue and began to teach. A really interesting verse in Luke 23, 56 says it's after Jesus had died and they were, he was ready to be buried. It says they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So that doesn't sound like people who were taught by Jesus that the Sabbath was no longer applicable to them. It seems like that they felt there was a continued need to keep the Sabbath. Right. These aren't... Uh, perfect proof text, but they, they built, they build a case. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think this then, is a controversial issue anyhow. Right. I mean, doesn't everyone agree that Jesus kept the <laughs> Torah, the law, because I mean, he had to be right. sinless, right? Yeah. So, so in that sense, we should probably move on to the rest of the apostles and to Paul in particular, because I, I can, I can just very briefly make the case that uh, in addition to the Sabbath, you know, we have in Luke 22, the fact that Jesus and the disciples sat down for the Last Supper, but the Last Supper is at least presented by Luke as a Passover meal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is teaching on the spiritual application of Passover, talking about leaven and so on. And then he says, let us celebrate the feast. And, and, and of course, I understand that there might be a couple different ways to, to interpret that verse, but it seems like he's saying... There's a spiritual application to Passover, so let's keep Passover and unleavened bread with that in mind. And, okay, that's uh, that's First Corinthians five seven. Cleanse out the old right. leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the right. old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with an unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right. So I I, I totally grant that he is talking about the spiritual application of Passover and of Christ's, you know, role as the, the Passover lamb. But then he says, let us celebrate the feast in, in, with that attitude in mind. So it would make sense if Paul was for Passover observance that he would say it that way. Okay. So maybe this would be like more corroborating. Right. Right. And, and, and that's, and that's, and I grant that this position has to be something that somebody comes to the text with and and I and I would say that those on the uh, other side whatever that other side might might be are also coming to the text with certain conclusions or perspectives in place and so there's there's not going to be a you know a slam dunk case that I can make or, or, or point that I can make that will that will convince people but is there enough evidence to demonstrate that that the Jesus and the Apostles had a positive view of the Torah and therefore we should too okay all right what next Next is the fact that the disciples kept Pentecost. Uh, we know the, the story in Acts chapter 2 uh, it took place during the holiday of Pentecost, which is, the, which is a biblical festival from Leviticus 23. And you could, you, know, you could think, okay, but it was just that one year. But then we have in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 to 9, it seems that Paul continued to observe pa uh, Pentecost in the years that followed. Uh, so it, Pentecost was a part of the calendar, if you will, of the early church. Okay. So the, the implication then would be that um, Christians should keep Pentecost today? Well, that brings it to the conclusion, which would be that I'm not necessarily trying to convince people that the holidays and the Sabbath are something that each individual must do and observe themselves. I'm more of trying to make the case of this is some, these are things that were a part of our faith at the beginning and probably should be at least a part of, in terms of our perspective, should we at least acknowledge these things? Now, how far somebody wants to go in their own observance, that's up to them. And I'm not here to, to tell people what to do or what not to do, but should we at least have a positive view of these things and recognize them as a part of our, of our faith? Okay, cool. What other texts would you like to look at? Very, very quickly, the other references that I would give to people is the fact that uh, the, the Jesus and the apostles, uh, you know, observed certain more ritual elements of the Torah. Like, for example, Jesus wore zitzit, which are these ritual fringes that Jewish people wear. Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. In Acts chapter 10, verse 14, Peter says to, that, to the, the voice in the vision, he says, I have always... Uh, he, that he basically saying I, he's always kept kosher. 
So again, that doesn't seem like somebody who was uh, against keeping kosher. It was, you know, he was a part, it was a part of his life. We're told in the early part of the Gospels that, that John the Baptist and Jesus were circumcised. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul was circumcised. But those are not controversial. But what is controversial, or, or could be, is in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, Paul had Timothy circumcised. So if Paul was against circumcision altogether, uh, especially for somebody who could have been considered Jewish, he certainly went about it the wrong way. <laughs> And uh, there, there's other references, but I think that's enough of a case in terms of Jesus, the apostles, and even Paul. Because I know, like you said, it's not that controversial to think of Jesus as somebody who was Torah observant. But then we, we tend to think of Paul as somebody who was, who was radically different. And I, I would make the case, and I, I, can, I can continue to in, in just a moment, that Paul had a very devoted life to Torah observance. And though he had a specific view about about Gentiles, that didn't change the fact that he himself was Jewish and kept the Torah scrupulously. Okay. Uh, let's just change gears for a second here and talk about your understanding of the issue of Gentiles coming in. I mean, you you mentioned, I think it's one of the last references, Acts 10 with Peter, the sheet mm-hmm. comes down with the unclean animals. God says, kill and eat. Peter says, no, I don't want to do that. And yet he is really making a broader point about Gentiles. And right. so then Peter does go over to Cornelius's house, and they have their own Pentecost experience there in the sense of like the Holy Spirit, the tongues, and all the rest. So they, Paul, uh, Peter and his comrades, they accept these guys, these Italians of all people, right, Calcanio? Right. Uh, they <laughs> accept them into the church, and... Then they're called on the carpet for it in Acts 11, but mm-hmm. uh, Peter gives his defense, and it seems like everyone's okay with that. But then after Paul's missionary journey, there is a real controversy again where there's a disagreement among Jewish Christians as to whether or not Gentiles need to keep the Torah as they've always kept the Torah, as the Jews always have. And that's where we get to the Acts 15 Council. So could you talk about that a little bit and your understanding of the inclusion of the Gentiles? Right. And and that's so important. We could come to an agreement, perhaps, that that, uh, for Jewish believers that there is no change in their relationship to the Torah. And uh, there there is in the sense that they, they fully recognize that it is Jesus who is the source of their salvation and, and uh, they're saved by grace um, through Jesus, but their relationship to the Torah remains pretty straightforward. The confusion comes, and they certainly had it in, in the first century, what is the obligation of a Gentile who comes to faith? Up until this point, there was really only two options. You could stay what was called a God-fearer, somebody who feared God, and you would be a part of the synagogue community, if you will, but you would not be a full member, that's for sure. Uh, The other option for a Gentile would to convert to Judaism, become a proselyte, and that would require them to take an oath to become Jewish and to live as a Jewish person was, to be obligated to all the commandments in the Torah, and to get circumcised if they were a male. So that was the main issue in Acts chapter 15. The issue was not even, you know, what is the obligation of a Gentile to the Torah, but does a Gentile have to become legally recognized as being Jewish in the Jewish community in order to be accepted? The understanding would be if they did require them to become legally Jewish, well, then they would keep the Torah as Jewish people do. So if the other side won, which it did, that Gentiles did not have to become legally Jewish, in order to be accepted as a, as a full member of the family of God, then what obligation did they have? And as, you, as we know from the text, they don't really specify what it is. They, they give them four uh, areas where they could observe those things. I, I think it's you know meat sacrifice to idols, uh, meat that is strangled, uh, blood and fornication. If they avoided those things, if they didn't engage in those things, they would be more readily accepted into the believing community. And then it says in verse 21, I believe, that for Moses has been preached 
I've got it here. For from ancient yeah. generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Right. And that, so that's one of those verses where it's like, I, I wish they were a little more explicit, but they weren't writing for us. They, were, they, <laughs> they, knew what they, they knew what they were talking about. I infer from that that, look, Gentiles are going to believe, are going to eventually learn what it is that they are obligated to do when it comes to the Torah. I'll just give you my opinion that I think that the Gentile believers then and now are required to do everything that the apostles say in, in their letters. And those are those are legitimately parts of the Torah. And, and most people don't really understand that, that when it comes to becoming a faithful person, a person of faith and, and becoming a person of good character, though, that's Torah too. Like that's what God wants and expects of all of his people. So the real issue or conflict comes, well, what is a Gentile's obligation to things like the Sabbath and keeping kosher? Well, I see in the apostles that they didn't require it of them. But that does not mean that the apostles had some vision of a different religion that wouldn't include those things. And I know that's difficult perhaps for some people to have in mind or to understand that the apostles didn't have a separate religion in mind when they allowed the Gentiles to not to not be obligated to those things. They, they assumed that they would be participating in things like the Sabbath without being fully obligated to keep it like a Jewish person would. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting stage in development here for mm. Christianity because at this point, the movement is mostly Jewish, and you have some Gentiles coming in, and then by the time of Acts 15, you start getting after Paul's first trip around the, the Mediterranean, you start getting a lot of Gentiles coming in, and the dynamic is already starting to shift a little bit there. And then, of course, to fast forward to later years, within a couple hundred years, well, certainly after the war, after the Great Jewish War, that uh, there, there is a real separating, parting of the ways. I had come across this quote. I, I've, you've probably heard of it before, but this is from the 4th century John Chrysostom says, Many I know respect the Jews and think that their present way of life is a venerable one. This is why I hasten to uproot and tear out this deadly opinion. I said that the synagogue is no better than a theater, and I bring forward a prophet as my witness. Surely the Jews are not more deserving of belief than their prophets. You had a harlot's brow. You became shameless before all. He's quoting the Old Testament. I think Hosea there. Where a harlot has set herself up, that place is a brothel. But the synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts. Jeremiah said, your house has become for me the den of a hyena. He does not simply say of a wild beast, but of a filthy wild beast. And again, I have abandoned my house. I have cast off my inheritance. But when God forsakes his people, what hope of salvation is left? When God forsakes a place, that place becomes the dwelling of demons. And then he goes on and he rants and he raves for actually quite a few sermons. But he's got this really strong, almost like a vituperative view of or denunciation of Christians having any kind of favored view towards the Jews. And uh, so what this tells me is a couple things. First of all, as late as two, three hundred years later, Christian Jewish relations are still, you know, somewhat intertwined. And secondly, that John here is seriously intimidated by the the persistence <laughs> of the Jews. I mean, you don't get right. all all that huffy as a preacher and like and, and Chrysostom is like like his moniker here, Chrysostom is literally means golden mouth. I mean, he is the golden right. mouth preacher and yet he's spewing this bile and right. he goes on and on. And so there is obviously this incredible tension between Jewish Christian relations and a lot of that mindset continues throughout into the Middle Ages, and then certainly into the Nazi era, and then even right. to, to our day in different kinds of ways. And so there is a lot of times a negative view, and you, you see this move that Chrysostom made over and over again where people will quote the Jewish Bible to the Jews as evidence for why the Jews are so terrible and why you shouldn't listen to them. Right. This is the interesting thing, that the separation between Judaism and Christianity, if you, if you want to put it that way, does not come as a result of the actual explicit teachings of Jesus and the apostles, 
but upon a misreading of their of their writings fueled by various anti-Semitic reasons like what you said about what John Chrysostom said and, and so many other leaders throughout the centuries had a negative view of Jewish people and Judaism that the ironic thing is if that they would be condemning Jesus and the apostles themselves, as I've already tried to make the case that they themselves were Jewish who, who, and lived a thoroughly Torah observant life. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is that your points that you made earlier where mm. certainly the Old Testament has a very high view of Torah and then the New mm. Testament bespeaks uh, observance by Jesus, by Paul, by even right. disciples after the atonement, after the right. resurrection, they're still going on. The Gentiles come in, that's huge, and I think you're in agreement with, I guess, mainstream Christianity on this, that the Gentiles were not required to keep Torah. I mean, it does not say Shabbat there. It does not say, right. you know, it says don't don't eat animals that have the blood in them, but it doesn't say don't eat pork. So I think you're in agreement on that. So where, where you're proposing a difference here is, one, just a general attitude of reverence and positivity towards the Torah, but then, two, that... Jews need to continue to keep the Torah even today. Right. So yeah, maybe you can establish yeah. that. Yeah, certainly I, I, I would say to Jewish believers, especially if they are living in a Jewish context, if they're able to establish a Messianic Jewish congregation, that they should be pursuing the Torah just like God has always expected them to do. And like you said, yeah, I don't think that the apostles required the new Gentile believers to be obligated to keep the Sabbath and, and things like that, especially not for salvation, but even in terms of their observance, they, they didn't have the same requirements as they did of their fellow Jews. But here's where, here's where I would differ. Even in the one thing that you mentioned that, for example, blood or meat that is strangled, most people don't realize that, that from a Jewish perspective, that is basically saying you can't buy meat in your regular meat markets you would need to buy your meat in a Jewish meat market because the only way from a Jewish perspective, the only way you could know that meat didn't have blood in it, so to speak, or wasn't strangled was if it was slaughtered according to the kosher method. So it's a unique uh, understanding and I get it from, from FFOZ, but they have this understanding that, that what they were saying to the Gentiles was that you needed to be connected to the Jewish community doesn't mean you have to become Jewish or even live specifically like a Jewish person. But like I said earlier, I don't think they ever envisioned a time when, when, when the Gentile Christians would actually be separate from them altogether. And that's the real difference that, I, that I'd have with probably mainstream understanding of Acts 15 and, and, and of Galatians, is that despite the fact that they said we don't have to become Jewish, that doesn't mean that we should be disconnected from Jewish people and Judaism, which we are for the most part. Very few exceptions. Let me ask you this. What do you think Paul is so angry about in the epistle of Galatians? Mm -hmm. The epistle to the Galatians is uh, something that everybody needs to take the time to read and understand. It's, it's very difficult to understand because there's a lot of language in there that is not even used elsewhere. It's, it's you know, Paul's, like you said, he's very angry, so he's writing within that that mood but i think what he's getting at there is there were people who were teaching that they were teaching the gentile believers that unless they become jewish and 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 take on that legal status in like in judaism to even today you know if you're a gentile if, you, if you're italian or whatever you are and you want to become jewish well you have to go through a process that is illegal in nature. It's, it's legally recognized in the Jewish community that you are no longer a Gentile, you're now Jewish, and you're, you're a convert to Judaism. So it appears from my reading of the text that some of the people were trying to influence the Gentile believers to think that they were not saved by God unless they had become proselytes, unless they had become converts to Judaism. Okay, and this and, is what we would call Judaizing. Well, yeah, I, I don't particularly like the term because just because it has a bit of a connotation like as if there's something wrong with Judaism or Jew, being Jewish. But the, the point remains that Paul was extremely against the idea that you had to you know, do anything besides trust in God and trust in, in Jesus for your salvation. Uh, salvation is by God's grace. It is not 
by works of any sense, and the specific works that he would be referring to regarding this issue would be things like getting circumcised and taking that oath to become Jewish and, and then keep the law as a Jewish person. So Paul was extremely against that. But the okay. thing is, once you understand that and you realize, well, I'm not looking for my salvation in any, anything but the grace of God through Jesus Christ, well, then, then, then what is my relationship to the Torah? And then you can take it from there and understand that we should have a, a first of all, there's many things that God requires of Gentiles in terms of obligation. He, he expects us to become like Christ, right? But in addition to that, we might want to consider if our faith was originally, you know, within the context of the Jewish faith, then perhaps we should return to that, restore that perspective to our faith as well. Okay, uh, let me, not to give you too hard of a time here, but uh, <laughs> there are a couple of texts here in j just Galatians. I mean, you've got Galatians, you've got Romans, you've got Hebrews. Those are the real battlegrounds for this right. point of view. What about this business with the schoolmaster in 324, where it says, the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster, our tutor, our pedagogos until Christ came in order that we right. might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under right. a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You have that there in Galatians 3. And then the other main one is Galatians 4 with the allegory of Hagar and you know, basically comparing the law, the Torah, to Hagar instead of Sarah. And uh, right. so walk us through how you see those two. It, it all comes down to, again, where do you place your faith? Where do you believe your uh, eternal life comes from? And if you think that, as they, the Galatians were being taught, if you think that becoming a, Jew, a Jewish person legally and therefore being obligated to the covenant at Sinai, if you believe that that is going to bring you salvation, then you're going to unfortunately uh, realize that all that will do is condemn you because all the Torah can do by itself is condemn a person. It can just show you where you've gone wrong. And that's why he says the Torah leads us to Messiah. It says in Romans 10:4 that Christ is the end of the law. And people think that means Christ ends the law, puts an end to the law, but it actually just means Christ is the goal of the law. It's something, the law brings you to Jesus because it shows you your need for salvation. It shows you that you are a sinner. So the association he's making in chapter four, as you mentioned, with the, with the, the covenant at Sinai is, is trying to obtain your salvation through gaining this status as a proselyte. That's what the whole letter is about, is, you know, Paul is trying to teach against people thinking that they need to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved. And he, what he would rather have us associate with is Abraham, because Abraham was not saved by being Jewish, because guess what? He was not Jewish. He, he was given salvation, if you will, before he was circumcised. And so Paul sees that as a great analogy for this situation, that, that you can be saved before you're circumcised. That is as a Gentile. And so I, I think we really have to be careful with how we're interpreting Galatians because he is specifically talking about this, this specific issue of whether or not Gentiles need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And he would say, no, God will save you as a Gentile. In fact, that's what God had planned from the very beginning. All right. So your perspective then on this this text in chapter 3 with the Guardian mm -hmm. is that this solely refers to the subject of salvation, not lifestyle? That's right. He's not, Paul is not specifically talking about what a Gentile who has a full understanding of salvation by grace through faith. He's not talking about that. Otherwise, he would sound more like Paul in Romans or more like Paul in one of the other letters where he's, he has a more positive uh, way of, 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 of referring to the Torah. Here, the Torah is not necessarily being referenced as just a set of instructions for how to live your life, but the way it was being misused by people back then to try to say that you must become a proselyte and then be obligated to the Torah. Otherwise, you are not saved at all. Okay. So on verse 25 there, where it says, mm -hmm. now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Right. What does that mean? Well, in that context, again, 
if the Torah was serving as a tutor or guardian, its function was to show you your need for salvation, your need for Jesus. But once you are saved and with in relationship with Jesus, if you will, well, you, you suddenly have a new relationship to the Torah. The Torah is now no longer something that is just a, a set of rules and regulations that will condemn you. Instead, you're looking to the living embodiment of the Torah, who is Jesus, and you're trying to live your life like him. And so I, I never point people to the Torah by itself. That's wrong-headed. What we're trying to point people to is Jesus lives out the Torah as perfectly as any human being could. And so let's look to him. And that's what Paul's getting at here is that we are, as he says in 26, we're, we're sons of God through faith in, in, in Christ Jesus. And so that's our relationship to the Torah now. We don't have a relationship to it the way that the people who were trying to influence the Galatians were, were, were putting it. Okay. When we come to texts like Romans 7, which mm-hmm. talks about the struggle to keep the Torah before Christ— that this is something that you know he finds freedom from in Romans 8. Now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The law of the Spirit of life has set f- you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. This is Romans 8, 3 now. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned it in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How do you, how do you see these two chapters working out? I, I guess it all depends on what perspective you take, because I view this as one of the most positive statements about, about uh, Torah observance for believers that, that, that there possibly could be, because Romans 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the Torah of God, to the law of God. So I truly believe what Paul is getting at here is, is that as an unbeliever, you're not even able to keep the Torah. Like it's, it's, it's something that is, must be a spiritual experience. So when you come to Christ, when you come to salvation in Jesus, suddenly the Spirit of God is active in your life. God is active in your life. And you are now able to live your life, as I said, with your eyes set on Jesus and what you will then inevitably do is live your life in conformance to God's ways. And so, you know, we have to remember that the Torah is not just things like the Sabbath. It is character things. It's, it's, it's how you live your life, how you treat other people. So I think that's more so what he's talking about here. He's not really even talking about things like the Sabbath. He's talking about like how we live our lives according to the Spirit of God. And in my opinion, the Spirit of God, God will never lead you away from what he has revealed to be morally right. Uh, is it okay for me to continue to pepper you with uh, difficult texts, or do you want to? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Lay out I mean, some more positive framework here. I mean, what do you think? Well, yeah, let me just let me just see if there was any other you know specific points. There are usually four main objections to if if you were to say like when I have said that we should have a positive view of the Torah, or or even have there's some relevance to those things like the Sabbath in our lives. I will usually hear, it can basically be narrowed down to four different objections, and I'll just All give right, them so what here. are the big four? So the first one is, well, we're saved by grace, so we don't need to keep the law, right? I'm sure you've heard something like that before. And to that I would say is, that's sort of misunderstanding what I'm even talking about, because I'm not saying that the, the law will save you, so therefore we should try to keep the law. Paul said in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So you have to ask, how were people saved before the coming of Jesus, before Jesus was, died on the cross? How, how would you say people were saved, Sean? Faithfulness to the covenant, I suppose. And I would zero in on that word faithfulness. So it's basically not different than what God expects of us now. We have the understanding, un- unlike many people before Jesus, of the fact that, that, that uh, salvation comes through Jesus and that he is the fulfillment of the covenant promises. But I would say that, you know, Abraham had an awareness of that. Maybe, I don't know what to what degree, but Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And, uh, you know, Paul says that we're supposed to be like Abraham in terms of his faith. And so I happen to think that all of the the people of faith in the before the coming of Jesus were saved by grace 
through faithfulness, through, through their own faith and through God's faithfulness, and that it all centers on Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. His sacrifice, if you will, is timeless. It doesn't just go forward. It goes back to anyone who had faith previous to that. Yeah. So that first, that first objection of, well, we're saved by grace. We don't need to keep the law or the law is irrelevant. It sort of misses the point altogether because yeah, I believe well, everybody was saved by grace. You know, maybe I'm not the best person to ask that question too, because I, mm-hmm. I definitely have bought into the new perspective on Paul. Right. And the, you know, just to state that briefly, the old perspective is the idea that the law is this terrible burden that God put on the people, almost like punishment, and nobody could mm. keep it, and it was impossible, and it was just so terrible. And then it was like a straitjacket, and Jesus came to set us free from that law. That's going back to Martin Luther, which I mentioned earlier, and his own experience as an Augustinian monk in a Catholic monastery, his own very works-based righteousness perspective. He's reading that into Romans. He's reading that into Paul's world. But there was a scholar named E.P. Sanders who read basically Mm. everything in the first three (laughs) centuries before Christ and after Christ in Hebrew. And he was he was looking for this mindset, and he couldn't find it there. And instead, what he found over and over again was an idea of the law coming as a covenant of grace, right? where God, God was the initiator there at, at Sinai. He graciously took this people unto himself. He graciously bound himself to them and said, hey, look, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then as an outflow from that covenant relationship— this is the way to live. This is the lifestyle. Right. And uh, so I, I already buy into all that. So maybe I, <laughs> I wasn't the best person to ask uh, but, for this. So, I mean, I think most Christians, if you ask how is somebody dur- living during like the kingdom of Israel saved, right. like so- somebody during Josiah's reign or something. Okay. Uh, they, they would say, oh, well, they look forward to Christ. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, <laughs> Messianic prophecies are, are pretty oblique if right. you're not already interpreting it from the perspective that Jesus has already come. And that's why I think a lot of people missed him. And that's why I believe God gave him such fabulous miracles and healing ministry and everything and exorcisms and, and, and all, the total package that was Jesus ministry to, to clarify, Hey, this is the guy. And then right. on the, and the, and the cherry on the top is the resurrection itself, vindicating the, his own messianic claims. But I, I would see it as people being faithful to, the covenant that they're in with God, and yeah. uh, that th- they understood that this is not to become saved. This is because God has saved them. He saved them from the world. He saved them, right. you know, and he has this whole uh, system in place to deal with sin on Yom Kippur every year, and that goat, that's supposed to carry away the sins of the people. Hmm. You know, and, and, and obviously this is, in a sense, putting it all on the credit card until Jesus can pay the price. Right. But I think it did provide a gracious way to deal with sin. Yes, and, and, that, and that's what we have to understand is that the covenants, and this leads me to the second objection, actually, because the second objection that people will usually say is, well, we're in, we are in the new covenant now. We don't need to keep the law. And you sort of alluded to that of what covenant, or whatever covenant that you're in, God expects you to be faithful to that. Well, what covenant are, let's say, Gentile Christians in? Well, just briefly, what, what were the covenants? The, the covenant with Abraham God initiated that, and he, and he promises blessings, the land and descendants and so on. And then there's the covenant at Mount Sinai with all of Israel, and that's where he presents to them his commandments and, and says he will give them, give them blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And the third one that I always like to bring up is the covenant with David, which promises the Messiah. It promises a king over Israel forever. So... What is the new covenant then? And, and if you read Jeremiah 31, if you read Ezekiel 36, you discover that the new covenant is not something that makes the, old co- the other covenants, the previous covenants, obsolete, but rather fulfills all of them. So I believe that we are a part of the new covenant by faith, but it doesn't really become fully realized until Jesus returns. And it's at that point when Jesus returns that suddenly... All of the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. Israel will be restored and will be keeping uh, all of God's ways, and therefore they will, they will be keeping the Sinai covenant. And of course, Jesus will be there 
in fulfillment of the covenant to David. So I don't believe the new covenant is, first of all, even something that we've even fully seen yet and something that we uh, are not a part of. Let me say that again, that the new covenant does not replace any of the previous covenants that have come before. So would you say that the new covenant is partially fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled? Yeah, we have it in in uh, in prospect. We have it like by faith. We take hold of it. We recognize that that what Jesus has done is what allows the new covenant to even be possible. But it really doesn't come into fulfillment until he returns. Okay. So what's number three? So the third objection would be, we are the church. We're part of the church. We Gentile Christians are part of the church. We're not Israel, so we don't need to keep the law. Uh, but I I, be, I really believe that if you look at um, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says that previous to, to faith, Gentiles were, were separated from Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. But now, through the blood of Jesus, we've been brought near, right? Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 13. And if you look at Romans chapter 11 with the, the, the broken off branches, which the tree represents Israel, and there's broken off natural branches, and then there's the grafted in branches, and that represents the fact that we Gentiles have been grafted into that tree. I think a better way of understanding ecclesiology, of understanding you know, the, the, the people of God, is that the church is not distinct from Israel. It's really just the faithful of Israel, Jewish believers, plus Gentile believers. And in that sense, if we are united with Jewish believers, I don't understand how we can think of ourselves as disconnected from from Israel. Therefore, I think we have participation in the Torah. It should be a part of our religious framework, if not our own individual lives. Okay, and number four? Number four, the fourth objection that I hear is, well, we are Gentiles, not Jews, so we don't need to keep the law. And, and we don't need to spend too much time on this because we've already discussed this, that like I, I happen to think that the apostles... Uh, fully expected Jewish believers to continue observing the, the Torah through the filter of Jesus and his teachings. But then we Gentile believers were not obligated to things that are specifically for Jewish identity like the Sabbath. But like I said just a moment ago, it's a, it should be a part of our faith framework. It, it should be a part of our religious framework and, and a part of our, our lives in that sense. So it, it, Gentiles are not disconnected from Jewish people because we're supposed to be one in Jesus. Jew, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. That doesn't mean there aren't distinctions, just like there could be distinctions between men and women. It just means in terms of our spiritual unity, we should be together in, in some sense. Okay. Let me ask you a question then that a friend asked me a while ago, which was, mm-hmm. let's say you're a Jewish person living today and you have only heard distorted depictions of Jesus you just like know in your bones that that is that is a that is a false messiah and so you've never heard, you've never had an honest or clear presentation of the biblical jesus biblical as a new testament you've only you've only heard these like distorted views of it and so you've you've been faithful to the covenant you know of your people that you've had since the time you were born and that you were basically born into and you hmm. do your best to believe in God, to, to pray, to keep kosher, you know, you're, you're observant, right. okay? Right. Is that person saved, or do they have to believe in Jesus? I believe that you have to have an understanding of who Jesus is and to embrace him on a personal level in order to be guaranteed, uh, you know, a place in the, in the first resurrection, a place in, in the kingdom. And so my heart breaks at, the, at just the thought, this is perfect, I, probably a great way to close our conversation because, you know, Paul says in, in Romans 9 verse 3 that he would lose his salvation. He would cut himself off of salvation if he could see the salvation of his, of his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. And I, my heart breaks, and this has really been one of the motivating factors of why I have uh, such a, a passion to see Christians having a positive view of the Torah, is that it is our presentation of Jesus that has led to many Jewish people rejecting him. Like we present Jesus as somebody who is very foreign to their idea and, and their right idea of a Jewish Messiah. So I'm not God and I can't judge each individual person and, and what exactly God will do perhaps in, the, in later judgment. 
But that's why it's important that we as Christians have a, a, a restoration of of the Jewish Jesus that's presented in the Gospels and of the Jewish Paul that's presented in the book of Acts and in his letters and begin to present them to the Jewish community and hopefully they will see just how Jewish they, they are. And then, as Jesus said, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and we will finally have the kingdom on earth. Yeah, yeah. Amen. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, as a whole, Christians have done absolutely terrible work mm. in relating to the Jews and uh, you know from Chrysostom up through the Middle Ages to the Inquisition and beyond I mean it's just absolutely repugnant the sort of relationship between us that there, there has been and uh, apart from the first century Christians uh, you know Gentile Christians have been the ones in the majority and have mm. more often than not been the ones in power and have not followed the example of Jesus, who loved his neighbor as himself, who loved even his enemies, and instead became much more like the Pharisees, who persecuted those who were different. Uh, so that's, that's to our shame. But, you know, we don't have to continue in that. We can have a more positive view and a more positive attitude and offer a more biblical, historical, and just as it turns out, palatable Jesus or Messiah right. to them. And uh, I, I think this is this is a truth whose time has come. You know, I, I've been kind of saying that slogan a little bit, you know, with uh, the interview I did recently with Bill Schlegel, but it's like, if this understanding really gets out there, mm-hmm. and I believe that it, it would be a really attractive perspective to somebody coming from a Jewish point of view, uh, as far as the uh, the Christology goes. I'm, I'm hearing you out here. I don't know to what degree I agree or disagree with you i have to think about this a little bit more uh i'm still i'm still kind of inclined to think that uh the law is no longer necessary even for jews Hmm. but assuming you were right and that the law is still properly kept by jews then that would be an even more attractive evangelism point because you could say to the jews hey join us and keep all of your heritage and your practices but believe in jesus too exactly Yes. Speaking as somebody from the other side of the tracks here, I think I would be fine saying that to a Jew anyhow. I mean, even if I don't believe they have to keep the law, I can still say to them, all right, well, keep the law. Just don't do it for salvation. And don't say that I have to then be Jewish just because you're become you know coming into the church or coming into christianity so i don't know i think there's definitely a lot of gray area where where there are some exciting possibilities here exactly and and i i think you put it very well just of the possibility of like if 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 this view is correct then suddenly that opens the door to jewish people having less barriers to coming to faith in jesus suddenly it's just them and their sin which is huge enough barrier for most people it's no longer you know terrible you know religious uh, barriers. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's us Christians looking back at the past and realizing, as you pointed out, all of the, the, the terrible things that that church leaders have said and done about and to Jewish people. Um, but we, we don't have to continue that. We, we can have a, a new era where Jewish and, and Christian relationships are, are good. And, and who knows, this might be what God is doing to set up the return of Jesus himself. Well, that would Certainly be a very exciting conclusion, wouldn't it? (laughs) It would. (laughs) All right, Daniel. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to express your your, and and having the courage and the boldness to express your position. You know, certainly given us a lot of food for thought. I'm not sure where to go from here, but I'd be very interested to see what Restitutio listeners think and, uh, you know, how how they how they interact with this. So uh, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thanks so much, Sean, and I appreciate it. And and um, be happy to come on uh, any other time and to further talk about that or, or maybe even debate it with anyone. Well, I hope you found that interesting. I'm very curious to, th- to hear what you think about this. I, I may have somebody responding to Calcano in the future, and he, he also suggested doing a debate format going forward. So if you, dear listener, would like to volunteer to debate Calcano on this uh, on this issue, please write in Sean at restitutio.org or just leave a comment on this episode. This way we can set something up. Also, starting 
Thursday night, which is tonight, and going all this weekend, I'm going to be at the at Restoration Fellowship's Theological Conference in Hampton, Georgia. So, hey, if you're in the area or if you're attending that conference, come by and say hello. Also, if you would like to watch that online, you can just go to theologicalconference.org and click on live streaming so you can watch uh, whatever parts of that interest you. As far as the schedule goes, they do have the schedule up there regarding who's speaking and when. We've got Dan Gill on Thursday night, uh, Dale Tuggy on Friday with Robin Todd in the morning, Keegan Chandler in the afternoon, and Bill Schlegel from all the way from Israel is speaking Friday night. I'm up Saturday morning at 9.15, and then Dick Eldred, and the afternoon is Joe Martin, and then in the evening is Anthony Buzzard. Sunday morning at 10.30, Dennis Baldwin is going to share probably more of a sermon than a theological presentation to close things out. So hey, tune into that if you're interested, theologicalconference.org. It's also on YouTube, the live stream, uh, but you can find all the details there on uh, theologicalconference.org. And then these materials will likely be made available later, usually by the 21st Century Reformation website. So take a look at that, 21stcr.org, and you can usually see a lot of the presentations after the fact on that. So that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.